This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I am back in Montreal, Kanyagahaga territory, and very happy to be here. Before I start today's episode, allow me to talk about another little personal anecdote. I used to live in this small town called Lennoxville, just outside of Montreal in the eastern townships, where I also happened to teach English at a local university. At that time, I had my two beautiful cats with me, and one of them, let's call him Snowflake, fell ill. Not gravely ill, just a little issue with his bowels, which made for some significant litter box woes. So I called the vet, who told me to make a quick trip to the local pharmacy to pick up kaopectate, known to help out with the occasional case of the runs, because although it's for humans, the vet said I could use it in small doses for my cat. So I trotted off to the local pharmacy, picked up a bottle of the stuff, made my way to the cash register, and there at the cash register was one of my students. I flushed pointed to the bottle and said, it's for my cat, which immediately felt like it was a lie. So I stood there feeling a little sense of shame and regret, but what else could I do? I paid for the bottle and left, my sense of shame trailing behind me. It's this kind of moment that offers a glimpse of those situations where you might think, do people know too much about me? Is it also helps you to recognize how fine that line can be between what is private and what is public, and the real need for dignity for which privacy allows. In this instance, this line was a little too thin for my liking. It's also this kind of line that isn't only typical of small towns, as is appropriate for today's discussion about Alice Munro, who specializes in small-town life, it's also important to considerations of biography and autobiography. Of the former, that is biography, I have cause to know. I'm writing one right now about Jane Rule, and I often find myself wondering, how much should I disclose? What's the limit? When I think about what I should include or not, I always ask myself, whose purpose am I serving? What is the good in what I'm choosing to include? What is my intention in revealing this information? The dignity of the subject of biography and autobiography is always at stake in these kinds of considerations and never, and I mean never, to be sacrificed to the curiosity of the reader. Alice Munro. She almost needs no introduction, but in case you don't know, She's been awarded the Nobel Prize for her literary contributions as a short story writer, and I don't have time to enumerate all of the other awards that have been heaped upon her. For today's episode, I'd like to note how much she is a master of handling the kind of autobiographical detail she is wont to include in her work, holding her readers still at a particular distance, not divulging too much 
but just enough to keep her readers interested. Monroe herself does little to disentangle fact from fiction, and even less to dissuade us from seeing the autobiographical possibilities in her work. Instead, she feeds this fascination. As one example, a book I'm not talking about today, but as one example in Dear Life, she argues that the final four stories in that collection are, quote, not quite stories. I believe that they are the first and last and the closest things I have to say about my own life, end quote. By such comments, it's clear she also fuels this interest in autobiographical detail about her life, even as she cultivates a deliberate, I would say strategic, ambiguity in terms of the factual and fictional elements in her narratives and in terms of what she allows us to know, what we are allowed to consider factually accurate. In her book, The View from Castle Rock, the focus of today's episode, Monroe has considerably more to say about perhaps one of the most close renderings of autobiographical detail in all of her books. This is the passage. These stories were not included in the books of fiction I put together at intervals. Why not? I felt they didn't belong. They were not memoirs, but they were closer to my own life than the other stories I had written even in the first person. In other first-person stories, I had drawn on personal material, but then I did anything I wanted with the material, because the chief thing I was doing was making a story. In the stories I hadn't collected, I was not doing exactly that. I was doing something closer to what a memoir does, exploring a life, my own own life, but not in an austere or rigorously factual way. But the figures around this self took on their own life and color and did things that they had not done in reality. These are stories. You could say that such stories pay more attention to the truth of a life than fiction usually does, but not enough to swear on. Well, here and elsewhere, Monroe identifies her stories in relation to their proximity to the facts of her life, close, closer, closest, without ever declaring outright that these or other stories are autobiographical. Well, if the first part of The View from Castle Rock isn't strictly autobiographical, Monroe does use surviving historical journals, accounts, letters, such as the um, Laidlaw Diary describing the crossing to Canada in 1818. She intersperses those documents with her own ruminations and conjectures. The second part of this book deals more closely with the narrator's personal and direct life. But Monroe, time and again, refuses to identify her stories, here and elsewhere, fully as memoir or autobiography. She often denies people the satisfaction related to biographical desire by bypassing what they may want to hear, withholding certain autobiographical details, or, as the forward to The View from Castle Rock makes plain, by withdrawing from any strict adherence to fact. There's, as she says, not enough truth in the stories to swear on. 
In doing this, she stages a necessary ambiguity. None of these stories is as close as people seem to think to fact. The very literary technique she calls upon elsewhere and repeatedly in her literary corpus. The narratives she offers may be closer to representing Monroe's life, but as she observes in her preface, not any representation in an austere or rigorously factual way. Well, in the view from Castle Rock, that ambiguous line between her life and its representation becomes a part of a dual strategy by which to honor not any such pact about truth-telling, but rather the dignity of those about whom she writes. Such ambiguity, especially when allied with the deployment of shame, becomes the device by which she imposes limits to the right to know and the proximity between reader and autobiographical text. Intimate disclosures are at times offered and then at other times denied the reader, who is implicitly challenged about the right to access the private details of a life. Any life. Monroe's assertions then about the closeness of her stories to fact, that not one of them is as close as people seem to think, suggest not only the ambiguity between fact and fiction, but also a necessary distance between an autobiographical text and the reader or the witness to that text. So, eliciting a sense of shame becomes crucial to producing distance. If we get too close, we're going to experience a sense of shame. Why? So that the dignity of the individual is privileged above factual reliability. For today's episode, I'm just going to focus on two quick incidents from this collection, in particular when Monroe shifts the focus of her stories to the present day, to the situation with the narrator's own father. In the story Home, she recounts her father's increasing physical decline, such that he's placed in intensive care in the hospital. How well I know how this feels, regrettably. The reasons for his decline in health are vague and mysterious, even to the narrator and apparently to the medical practitioner as well. Why do you think he's running this temperature? She asks the doctor who responds, he has an infection somewhere. Upon the narrator's probing further, he finally replies that he believes that the main trouble is the heart. Directly thereafter, this story concludes with the scene of the first memory of her life, one that involves a memory of her father sitting on a three-legged milking stool. Recalling the details of that moment, she concludes the story by reflecting upon the cold, which, quote, even then must have been gathering, building into the cold of that extraordinary winter which killed all the chestnut trees and many orchards, End quote. In reading the story for the first time, I thought it was a metaphor, but still I wondered, what happened to her father who lay in the hospital with a mysterious heart condition? Did he die? If he did die, how did he die? Immediately I turned the page and was confronted by the title of the next story. What do you want to know for? <laughs> that title challenged the presumptuous nature of my questions. The story begins, moreover, not with her father's imminent death or his funeral, as I anticipated, 
but rather with the narrator and her husband's identification of a crypt that they noticed in the vicinity of Georgian Bay. So we're met with a gap. But Monroe claims that gaps do actually have a particular function in her narratives. She argues elsewhere that all of her stories have gaps because that's the way people's lives present themselves. I would say, though, that such a gap also marks, in this moment, the limit to the right or the privilege to know, as the narrator also acknowledges of herself. What, indeed, do we as readers want to know for? Why is it important to know? I experienced a sense of uneasiness and shame at my desire, my curiosity to know more. Surely the privacy of both the narrator and her father ought to be privileged. It was my own sense of shame that marked the limit to the right to intimacy generated by personal knowledge. In another passage, she comments on a visit to the doctor to consult with him about an unyielding and mysterious lump, quote, deep in my left breast, which neither my doctor nor I had been able to feel, end quote, and for which her medical practitioner sets up an appointment with a city doctor to do an invasive biopsy. The narrator's own mortality, in other words, becomes a source of her exploration here, and she contextualizes her ruminations within and makes remarks about her health that are analogous to, quote, the countryside that we think we know so well and that is always springing some sort of surprise on us. So, when she comments upon the changes to a landscape with which she's so familiar and remarks, you have to keep checking, taking in the changes, seeing things while they last, her observation is equally applicable to the regular visits to her doctor to consult further about the results of her mammogram. She, too, must necessarily be curious about her own body and keep checking to see if any of the discernible changes require further investigation. Within proper confines and context, she seems to suggest, human curiosity is not shameful and not a means of generating limits between persons, but rather its opposite. Some probing is necessary for one's own well-being and actually for a larger community. Learning and investigating to acquire knowledge is not always or necessarily a shameful or shifty enterprise. In her search for more information about a crypt, for example, that she and her husband discover, they approach the minister of St. Peter's Church, located just outside of Williamsford. The narrator learns not only about Manorow Cemetery, but also about her own family. She notes that the minister invites them into her house and doesn't even seem surprised by their curiosity. Clearly, she is aware of the potential for intrusiveness or for inappropriate curiosity and the limits thereof. But she converses with the minister, and as she does so, she makes plain that there are protocols that govern those conversations, which she heeds. In fact, she claims to understand these protocols because of her own origins in the place. Eventually, as they continue to converse, her curiosity does seem to do some good, since the minister's husband comes to recognize both who her father is and who the narrator herself is, and they consequently explore the connection to see as far as it'll go. In this case, curiosity generates an appropriate and intimate connection 
and is important, vital, to developing relationships. In other words, there are appropriate contexts, there are appropriate circumstances for one's curiosity about another person's life, for which the narrator herself serves as a model. And these contexts and circumstances bring coherence and significance to her life. So Monroe doesn't discount the curiosity of the outsider who wants to know more about personal matters that have no particular relevance to his or her own life outright. But she does invite us to consider what end will be achieved in knowing about the personal details of someone else's life or an impractical subject. How would it facilitate one's sense of being or position within a community? If you read this book, you'll realize that Monroe locates these questions in her observations about glacial geography, an expansive sense of time, and she extends the nature and implications of the question. It doesn't just have local repercussions. She situates human curiosity within larger existential questions about why knowing is important and what ends it'll serve. She does so by locating her own investigative questions within a geographical landscape that extends well beyond her own lifetime. This is a passage from Monroe's book. The landscape here is a record of ancient events. It was formed by the advancing, stationary, and retreating ice. The ice has staged its conquest and retreats here several times, withdrawing for the last time about 15,000 years ago. Quite recently, you might say. Quite recently now that I have got used to a certain way of reckoning history. Well, here Monroe links her personal experience of landscape to the larger processes of society and environment, to a geological perspective. The human presence is just a brief flicker of light in that expanse. Curiosity, in this sense, serves as a humbling reminder of the narrator's mortality and that of the reader. It underscores the existential nature of human existence and perhaps the futility of knowing anything at all. Such curiosity, asking and knowing about the personal lives of others, has its uses and its contexts, and this is what I'm also learning as a biographer. As Monroe has elsewhere noted, she desires to write in a way that both honors her subject and treats it honestly. If she's ambiguous in her disclosures related to her life, these disclosures have less to do with adherence to the facts than with dignity. Her ambiguity bypasses the regret that might come with an inappropriate disclosure as it also reminds us of the limits to intimacy. It reminds us as readers to consider what purpose such intimacy would serve. In the last few lines of the story, What Do You Want to Know For?, she remarks upon how the biopsy was one of a series of frights that come and go until there'll be one that won't, one that won't go. The reader is not provided with other details here, 
another reminder, I believe, of the appropriate limits to knowing, of the limits to intimacy. By staging a necessary ambiguity between fact and fiction and using shame as a device to guard against readers who may probe too deeply, Monroe reminds readers of who we think we are and invites us to remember what we want to know for. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. You'll know why in a moment I chose Zoe Whittle's The Spectacular as the subject of today's takeaway. Whittle, of course, is an accomplished poet, novelist, and journalist. And I love the fact that she grew up on a sheep farm in the rural eastern townships of Quebec, where I started teaching and, well, where I started today's episode. She's known for two books of poetry, The Best Ten Minutes of Your Life, published in 2001, and The Emily Valentine Poems, published in 2006. Her first novel, Bottle Rocket Hearts, published in 2007, was almost an instant sensation. And Holding Still for as Long as Possible, which was shortlisted for the 2010 Relit Award. In 2016, her novel, The Best Kind of People, was published by the House of Anansi and shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, and this was followed by The Spectacular, published in 2021. Now, there has been some considerable back and forth on social media about this novel and in various uh, media outlets, and I gather from its reception that there are some rather polarized views about it. I'll include a couple of links to these reviews in my show notes. So I finally read it, and then I listened to this wonderful book again on Audible. One thing I think most people will not dispute is that Whittle can toss off a sentence of prose almost like nobody else. She's a thoroughly gifted writer. I realized, though, that part of the problem with this book's reception is that it's inappropriately packaged as a novel. A novel comes with a certain set of expectations, one of these being that the narrative arc is usually and quite consistently focused around the life of one character. And if it does involve several characters, they're usually embedded in this line of action together. Well, that's not what we get in Whittle's The Spectacular. No, instead we have these stories that emerge from the lives of three women. Ruth, the grandmother figure, Carola, a mother figure, and Missy, the daughter, spanning three different generations and the decisions that emanate from viewpoints that shift over time and from their striving for freedom. These decisions aren't necessarily focused on one thing, but rather are informed by a series of issues by which the women are habitually confronted related to sexuality, gender, and women's autonomy. Should we have children? Will we regret not having a child later in life? Will having a child interfere with one's career? Should we pursue that career with undivided attention? And so on. I think having tagged this wonderful book as a novel did it a disservice. It's properly called a short story cycle, stories that are linked by place, character, or theme, and it falls comfortably within the tradition of Alice Munro's Lives of Girls and Women being a more modern and urban version, if you will. I kind of suspect that if it had been packaged that way, it would have gone a long way to offsetting any of the criticism it received. It did also get a lot of praise. It's a very fine collection of linked short stories that trace the lives of these three highly dynamic, unique, and vibrant women. 
I wholeheartedly endorse reading it, or for that matter, listening to it on Audible. And I wholeheartedly endorse as writers Alice Munro and Zoe Whittle, both of whom I think are in their own right spectacular. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Getting Lit with Linda. Please join me for the next episode when I interview a much-beloved Toronto-based writer of fiction, Terry Favreau. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.